to our second webinar of the G20 at 22 seminar series. This is a talk that will be given by Amar Bhattacharya on sustainable infrastructure for recovery and better growth and agenda for the G20. Under the, the guise of building back better, Amar will be speaking about sustainable infrastructure and we are delighted to welcome him. Uh, this webinar series is a recent initiative of ICRIA. As many of you would recall, the first seminar of this G20 at 22 series was held uh, a couple of months ago and was given by Sri Suresh Prabhu, who, as you all know, is our G20 Sherpa. Uh, ICRIA has also been involved in G20 research for more than a decade, since 2009. We worked very closely with our Ministry of Finance and with other ministries, and we continue to do so. And we brought out several research papers, 16 to be precise, over the course of the last few years. And currently, we are working on four papers, including evolution of the Sherpa track and including evolution of the finance track, with a view to inform what our potential agenda could be in 2022 when India assumes the presidency. Uh, this initiative uh, at ICRIR also involves getting different stakeholders, experts, academics, policymakers on board so that you know, when we reach 2022, we've created a very rich set of discussions and discourses that can help us inform what the agenda in 2022 is likely to be. Uh, the agenda in India could be ranged from several issues that are important to us, from global health to climate change, from agriculture to food security, from trade to investment, from employment to the future of work, and what Amar is going to discuss today, which is sustainable infrastructure. Uh, the pandemic, of course, has exposed weaknesses in our public health systems, in our education systems, and also in our infrastructure. And I think infrastructure is extremely important because it can be the driver of growth. But it's important to look at infrastructure, not in the here and now, but also look at infrastructure in a much more sustainable sense. And that's precisely what Amar is likely to focus on. As the policy challenge turns into an immediate response to recovery, infrastructure-related investments can and should become the important element of the medium and long-term stimulus packages to help drive economic rebound and enable sustainable transformation in G20 economies, including in India. We are absolutely delighted that Rakesh Mohan is back in India and has agreed to chair this seminar, uh, uh, this webinar. And, uh, uh, you know, Rakesh has been, personally, he's been a great friend, uh, to me, I worked with him closely. I don't know if Rakesh remembers. My first interaction with Rakesh was when I was a young, you know, master's graduate and working uh, with an institution which is now defunct called the Policy Group, which Rakesh used to visit very often. And that was my first interaction with Rakesh. And over the years, over the course of the next, you know, 30 years, I've interacted a lot with Rakesh. Rakesh has been, you know, at the ministry. He's been the chief economic advisor. He's been uh, the deputy governor of the Reserve Bank. He's been uh, with the IMF as executive director. And also he's been the director of ICRIA and is now going to be the direct president of the new research institution. Well, the new name to an old uh, research institution, Brookings, the new name is Center for Society and Economic Progress. Uh, and Rakesh is, is back from uh, United States, back from teaching at Yale University to 
to head that. We wish you all the best, Rakesh, and welcome back to India. And thank you so much for agreeing to chair this seminar. Uh, and uh, Amar, uh, thank you so much for doing this, to being a part of our uh, G20 22 series. Amar has also worked with ICRIA in its engagement with the new climate economy for a long time, for the last six years, and has been an intellectual mentor for a lot of the work that ICRIA has done in the area of urbanization, in the area of sustainable infrastructure and finance. So thank you both for doing this. Uh, and over to you, Rakesh, uh, for your comments and introduction of Amar. Thank you, Rakesh. Thank you very much, uh, Rajat, for inviting me to uh, moderate this uh, webinar. Uh, this is indeed my first outing, in a sense, since uh, getting home uh, on October 2. Um, so thank you for introducing me back home, uh, in a sense. Um, this, this is a, from what you said, this is sort of like, it seems like an old boys club. Um, so I've known Amar since the early 1970s when we were both graduate students at Princeton University. And after that, uh, we were together in the World Bank. Um, he lasted somewhat longer in the World Bank than I did. So he was there for, I think what's 30 years or more in the World Bank. Um, and of course, if you spend 30 years in the World Bank, you've worked on many things, different countries uh, and, we, uh, and different subjects. Um, but, uh, in, in the current context, uh, I think Amar's distinction really is he probably holds the record for attending the most G20 meetings in the world. Uh, I don't know if, if there's any competitor who is even close to his record of attendance at G20 meetings. And uh, so in the uh, seven, eight years or so, eight, 10 years or so that I also attended G20 meetings as the Indian deputy, um, from both the finance ministry as well as from the Reserve Bank, I used to meet him in those meetings as well. Um, he was director of the G20, after leaving the World Bank, he was director of the G24 group for seven years. And that also uh, coincided with part of my time as executive director in the IMF. Now, more to the point in terms of today's subject, um, he um, has for the last seven years or so uh, at Brookings, been working pretty exclusively on infrastructure issues, the environment, uh, sustainable development, climate change, and all of the above put together. And uh, given that this is really sort of the, in some sense, almost literally the burning issue uh, in front of the world for the next uh, time, next decades to come, that today's, um, uh, today's uh, subject is really timely in the G20 context. Let me just uh, take a couple of minutes on infrastructure itself. Um, what is very interesting about infrastructure policy actually is that over the last 30 years or so from the early 1990s, there has been a great churn in thinking on both infrastructure policy uh, as well as its uh, investment infrastructure, funding of infrastructure, financing of infrastructure, a huge degree of churn uh, really in the last 30 years. Prior to the 1990s, in most countries in the world, most infrastructure was publicly funded and executed as well by the public sector broadly defined, whether it was local governments, whether it was state governments or the central governments, depending on the country that, we, that you looked at. Um, and 
part of the reason for this really was a key reason for this was that infrastructure was seen as a public good or as a public service. And therefore it was felt that it was not feasible for the private sector to invest in uh, because there were too many externalities or in, for investment infrastructure. Um, in the 1990s, um, three things took place. One, in some sense, the ideological change from Thatcher Reagan years of much greater importance to the private sector and everything. Two, technological changes which were possible to capture the returns from infrastructure which were not possible before. And three, a great degree of financial sector developments that then also made it possible for private sector uh, financing uh, of infrastructure. And so um, there was a lot of change that took place in the 1990s, essentially moving towards much greater private sector participation, infrastructure investment and funding, uh, partly through the use of public-private partnerships. Now, as I see it now, as some of you may know, I was involved in this in the mid-1990s when I chaired the expert group infrastructure Ministry of Financial Issues Report 2001, and yet another one, the India Transport Report uh, in 2014. Um, so what I've, what I've seen in these 30 years, and more so say the last seven to eight years, is that there is more, more churn going on, more rethinking going on, and Amar has been very much part of this rethinking. In terms of some tilting back towards the public sector, some tilting back towards public sector funding, and also new ways of thinking about infrastructure. Um, now, of course, a new issue, which you were not thinking of even 10 years ago, 15 years ago, is the issue on environment and climate change and how bring infrastructure investment for the future. It doesn't hurt the environment, it doesn't make climate change worse, but even better, can we do it in such a way that it, it, it uh, in fact helps in reversing the climate issues that we are coming across. So this is what, as I understand it, Amar is going to talk about today. Uh, so Amar, here you are, uh, you have 40 minutes. Thank you uh, very much, Rakesh. And uh, it's a real pleasure to be back uh, speaking at your career. You know, it's been a long partnership and, you know, uh, on the G20 in particular. And, you know, I, I really treasure it. Um, with Rakesh, well, you know, he's one of my oldest friends, but I'm also a great admirer. And, you know, he's quite modest because he really has had tremendous seminal impact uh, on the infrastructure space. And he was by far in my view, one of the best representatives of India and the G20. So I, it's a real honor uh, to have this uh, session chaired, uh, moderated by, by Dr. Rakesh Mohan. So I'm going to do, uh, I have a slide presentation, which uh, if you, know, you could load up, I thought it'd be useful to have a structure. So I'm going to basically uh, do uh, follow a four-part structure, which is in the uh, the second slide, if you could go to that. So I want to do um, what Rakesh said, which is introduce where that churning on infrastructure uh, thinking has left us today. And the churning still continues in my mind. And I should add, uh, as uh, Rajat knows and Rakesh knows, 
that a lot, I mean, pretty much all my work in this space and in climate is very much a joined up enterprise with, uh, with Nick Stern, you know, who is also very, very closely associated with ICRA and of course, a longstanding friend of India. So I will basically first talk about the centrality uh, uh, of uh, quality and sustainable infrastructure. And the reason for adding quality is because that's been a big focus in the G20 in the last two years. Uh, second, I'll talk about why there is great urgency, uh, scale and opportunity that was there before, but it has been heightened by COVID. Uh, I'll, talk, uh, I'll give an overview of the role of the G20 on, on uh, infrastructure. Um, you know, for many years, I was part of the infrastructure working group of the G20, so I saw it from inside, but I've tracked their work very closely in the different, uh, different tracks of the G20, you know, since. And last, I want to try and, you know, put some thoughts and ideas on how India could begin to start thinking about the sustainable infrastructure agenda in its uh, G20 presidency. Um, uh, so if I could uh, maybe uh, begin with uh, slide three. So on slide three, uh, as you will see, I, this is a little bit stepping back about more the thinking about growth at this point in time and recognizing that, you know, mm -hmm. in some sense, We've put a lot of emphasis on physical capital, but you know, in a, you know, really, we recognize now more strongly on the complementarity of all forms of capital, natural, human, social, and physical. Uh, and it also, we have recognized that we have to give a lot more emphasis on sustainability. Sustainability in the, broadest sense of the word is ensuring that future generations really have as much of an opportunity as current generations do. But from that, you know, uh, you know overarching principle comes the, the message of taking the long view, taking externalities and spillovers into account uh, and ensuring, uh, you know, that, uh, we are in some sense particularly giving emphasis now to taking care of the planet. Uh, in that context, slide four really uh, talks about the role of infrastructure. And this is uh, something that you know, I use to connect to the SDGs because you know, we think about the SDGs and if you think about the SDGs in three clusters, those are uh, goals that support inclusive growth, those that enhance access to basic services and those that promote environmental sustainability. And if you really think for about it, you will you know, quickly come to the realization that sustainable infrastructure really is a glue that connects all of this. Slide five, let me talk a little bit about the dimensionalities around uh, sustainable infrastructure. Uh, you know, what do we mean by sustainable infrastructure? You know, we basically think about four big buckets, uh, energy, um, uh, transport, uh, water and sanitation, and digital infrastructure. Uh, I would add that in the new thinking, 
there is more and more emphasis on natural infrastructure and nature-based solutions, including in this coming year, there will be a lot of emphasis on biodiversity. Now, in terms of the, the requirements for infrastructure, uh, there are four drivers why infrastructure spending is important here and now, particularly in the context of sustainable, sustainable future for people and planet. The first is that when you look at a lot of the existing capital stock of the world, and you know, you look at the infrastructure stock of the world, a lot of it is not fit for purpose, meaning that it is not environmentally sustainable. If you just look at that infrastructure stock that we have in the world, it will eat up the world's carbon budget, okay? So it's not sustainable in an environmental sense, but it's also not as productive as it could be given the changes in technology that has happened. It's not as inclusive as it could be. It's not as smart as it could be. So in order to be able to transform this existing capital, there are tremendous opportunities to replace aging and polluting capital through better infrastructure. I used to always say, oh, this is an opportunity for the advanced economies, particularly the United States, but it's actually a tremendous need and opportunity in emerging markets and developing countries because they have invested a lot in bad infrastructure over the last three decades. So the first priority is the repurposing of capital. The second is anticipation of growth and structural change. We know that emerging markets will be growing much faster, I hope. We know that there is a rising middle class. We know there is structural change, especially urbanization. From that, we anticipate that the stock of infrastructure of the world will need to double in the next 15 to 20 years. And most of that increase in infrastructure spending, of course, has to be in emerging markets and developing countries. The third factor is importance now of resilience and adaptation. We are already in the midst of deep climate change. It has emphasized the importance of resilience and adaptation, we have to build infrastructure to a higher standard, and there are significant additionalities of investment needs to meet that. And last but not least, as I mentioned, we need to start arresting the degradation of natural capital, and we need to start investing in natural infrastructure. And you can think about soils as actually a fundamental dimension of natural infrastructure, you can think about forests and landscapes, you know, the restoration of wetlands and drylands and ecosystems. These are all extremely important right now. So the totality of the needs that we anticipate from all of this is significantly greater. And this is going to be concentrated in the next two decades. That is a very important feature to keep in mind that we have to make these investments upfront if we are to make the transformation that is needed. Now, the systems that we are talking about, as I said, is energy, cities, food and land use, water, 
in industry innovation, transport, and uh, the digital infrastructure. In a, in a study of the new climate economy done now two years ago, a modeling exercise that we did suggested that if you invest better in infrastructure, it's not a cost, it's actually a tremendous dividend. You get a lot more growth, you get a lot more jobs, you get, in some sense, uh, you know, significant amount of additional revenues, especially if you price fossil fuels right. And, you know, you can avoid a lot of health damage, especially through pollution, as India so vividly knows. Now, despite the importance of infrastructure, if you go to slide seven, uh, there are two fundamental impediments that have held back infrastructure. On the one hand, while there are tremendous needs and opportunities, in country after country, we find it difficult to translate it into realized demand. Oftentimes, some people call it lack of bankable projects. You know, I like to think about it as you know, difficulties around decision-making in the infrastructure space, the difficulties around ensuring that those decisions not just happen, but happen right. And I often give an example from the United States. It took in Washington, DC, you know, 25 years to conceive, you know, implement and now complete one metro line. China is building 360 systems that will transform urban transport in China in a very, very environmentally sustainable way. So the, the kind of decision-making structures in infrastructure is one fundamental constraint. And on the other side is finance. We all know there's plentiful available pools of available finance, but we are unable to mobilize the right finance at reasonable cost. Cost of capital is a tremendous impediment still in infrastructure in emerging markets. This is not just true in low-income countries, it's true in emerging markets, in Brazil and in Argentina. And if the cost of capital is very high, it basically kills the viability of an infrastructure project. So against this backdrop, you know, we basically are now looking at, in some sense, tackling two things. How do you, in some sense, follow uh, infrastructure agenda that in, recognizes the complex nature of infrastructure investment? It's very long-term uh, and a large upfront investment requirements, the spillovers and externalities that are associated with infrastructure. This is in slide eight. Uh, the complex decision-making process and policy-induced risk that are inherent given the public-private nature that Rakesh mentioned. And now the urgent challenge to cut carbon emissions and build resilience. You know, we have to be able to do both of these things. And the framework that you can think of that, you know, in some sense, an integrated framework is built around several pillars, a, in a robust upstream policy and institutional foundations, platforms that allow you to scale up for project preparation, ensuring that you have good projects at the individual level where this tremendous amount of work 
that has gone on in the development of standards, including the latest one being developed by the American Society of Civil Engineers, uh, ensuring that we have the data and the kind of labeling of sustainable infrastructure so that you know, all of these pillars work well. And last but not least, the tremendous challenge of mobilizing and aligning finance. If you go to slide nine, it basically lays out, in some sense, these complex policy and institutional you know, uh, uh, underpinnings. And you can think about it as a decision-making process. The clarity of strategy, the necessity of having clear infrastructure plans. Very, very few countries have done what India has done, which is think about the planning of infrastructure. A few countries in East Asia have done it, but you know, there are very, very few countries that anticipate the kind of requirements of infrastructure. Interestingly, the United Kingdom, which was you know, the one, as Rakesh mentioned, went to the Thatcher, Margaret uh, Thatcher kind of paradigm of privatization, has now come back full circle to recognize the importance of such frameworks. They are the one country that does a very thorough job of forward planning, scenario analysis, and even using AI to think about lots of alternative you know, scenarios for the future. The importance of the project preparation process, including all the way to procurement, and then of course, the project cycle in terms of design, uh, construction, commissioning and decommissioning. And underpinning all of this is the business and policy environment and the institutional capacity and governance. I don't have time to delve into this, but it is these are the building blocks of what I would call sound decision-making and sound infrastructure. The other aspect of infrastructure that is you know, uh, very, very important is of course, the, these, you know, the nature of its financing. And if you look at slide 11, what you see there is essentially that you know, infrastructure takes a long time to prepare, requiring a lot of upfront money for project preparation. You have to put even much larger sums of money into the project preparation phase with lots of you know, uncertainty in that phase about potential revenue streams, about construction costs, about you know, permit delays and all of that. We all know that very well. And then once the revenue starts coming in, it comes in over a very, very long period of time. These risk characteristics are extremely important in understanding the dimensionalities around finance. So if you go to slide 11, uh, there, it's also very important to distinguish between two aspects, what some of us call infrastructure funding, which is where are the ultimate revenues of the infrastructure going to come from, and the infrastructure financing that then turns this funding into long-term finance. And in terms of the funding, there are really three sources of funding. Uh, the first is that it comes from the revenues from user charges. The second is it can come from general purpose tax revenues. So, you know, and, and made available in what we call availability payments. And the last is 
you can have specialized earmark charges. For example, in the US, there has been a cess on, on gasoline for a very long time to finance, say, the US highway system. So, you know, these are the sources of funding. And a fundamental problem of infrastructure is that this is not clarified clearly enough and strongly enough that leads to a lot of policy-induced risk. And it is wrong to think that in the case of infrastructure, everything should come from user charges. And I'll come to that a little bit later. Uh, on the, uh, and if you go to slide 12, uh, you know, this is work that Dr. Yoshino from ADBI has been doing with great vigor over some years now. And his central point is, you know, the revenue implications of spillovers in infrastructure. If you build a, a road in a reasonably populated area, then the car, uh, the cars that drive on that road tap maybe 20% of the benefit, maybe 20% of the benefit of the road. Most of the benefits, of course, go to the contiguous areas in terms of the economic activity that it fosters and in terms of the asset valuation that it engenders. But we do not have good ways in which to tap those revenues and bring them back to the infrastructure project in a, in a clear way. And in East Asia now, there is a lot of development of models that have begun to do it. They are very widely now being applied in Japan, but they are also now being experimented in the Philippines, in Thailand, in Indonesia. And this is something that we have to think about, especially in the Indian context, where we have had a big, big problem in the financing of infrastructure. The last point I want to end with is the challenge around uh, the finance side. Uh, so for a long time, it has been, you know, uh, at the moment, about 80% of uh, infrastructure projects are publicly financed, okay? Um, and that it reflects very much the public sector role, but it also reflects the fact that we have not come up with good, strong models of public-private partnership, not PPPs, but I'm talking about public-private uh, partnerships that create a replicable, scalable model of finance. It is simply not possible to finance the scale of infrastructure and the lumpiness that we anticipate in the next two decades on the basis of current public uh, borrowing, or even in the, on the back of general purpose public borrowing. So we have to think very, very strongly about not jumping immediately to private finance and saying, oh, private finance will solve the problem, but what is the structure of finance that will in some sense manage the risks, uh, reduce the risks and share the risks effectively. And in this, the role of development finance is absolutely critical because development finance is what allows us to in some sense manage those risks, keep the public sector to account, but also ensure that the cost of capital is, is a solution uh, I mean, that we have uh, private capital is a solution and not a problem. And I'll come back to that later. 
Let me speed up a little bit. If you go to slide 14, I will go now quickly through the urgency scale and opportunity. So as I mentioned, in the next 15 years, infrastructure stock doubles in the next two decades. You know, the world economy doubles, maybe now not in the next 20, maybe in the next 25. Uh, and we will, you know, in the next 20 years, urban space will double. And in the next 40 years, uh, urban populations will double. All of this has to be achieved by, in some sense, cut, cutting emissions by 50% between now and 2050, if we want to stick to uh, uh, the 1.5 degree target. And the second, uh, on slide 16, you see that you know, there is mounting evidence, the science is very clear, that the difference between one and a half degrees and two degrees is strongly significant. And it is particularly the case when you look at the impacts in uh, India, for example, that the differences uh, are really literally between a livable and non-livable conditions. So I think you know, there is great, great urgency, therefore, in the kind of scale arguments of transformation that I, met, I mentioned. In terms of where we are right now, we are seriously off track both with respect to climate mitigation, as well with respect to climate adaptation. The path that we have to follow to get to 1.5 degrees is a path to 2050. And uh, you know, one of the good things now in the last six months is a strong recognition of, uh, a strong, last nine months is a strong recognition of this. Uh, the European Union, is the first big group of major emitters that came behind the net zero target by 2050. Um, very strikingly, a few weeks ago, Japan, I mean, China um, uh, has come behind the net zero, but setting a target of 2060, which is not, you know, which is a first uh, goal, I think is very positive. And day before yesterday, Japan committed to net zero by 2050. So there is a growing momentum now behind the net uh, zero by 2050, which has very, very important implications uh, for sustainable infrastructure. The second point is that we are in the middle of a, um, uh, you know, we are in the, in the middle uh, of the COVID pandemic. And the COVID pandemic has really transformed in some sense, not just the current situation, but the way in which we think about the future. I mean, in a way it has underscored or highlighted the dangers and fragilities of the path we were on, including the links between you know, climate and pandemics. You know? um, and it has also in some sense made it imperative now to build back better. Uh, it's a, you know, building back better will be more difficult in the circumstances we face, but if we, but there are also tremendous opportunities because it is like restarting uh, the engine. We have a lot of evidence and mounting evidence that sustainable investments can produce powerful benefits for the recovery, and they can pow produce powerful benefits for sustainable, sustainable future. They can be fast, they can be labor in, in, uh, intensive, they have strong economic multipliers. Uh, we, you know, they can be 
they can be delivered through investment, as I mentioned, in, in natural as well as physical capital. Land restoration uh, is a good example, broadband, renewables, infrastructure, and it's absolutely imperative to avoid lock-in of brown uh, uh, recovery. Slide 19 uh, shows you that, you know, that the, the short and long-term features, I won't skip that. And what uh, slide 20 is, is quite sobering, uh, you know, that, you know, if you look uh, at um, uh, the packages that have been announced today, uh, you know, the sustainable part of the spending and particularly in this infrastructure space is, uh, is more brown than green at this point in time. That is understandable because in the first instance, it's about stabilizing economies, but this is an agenda item, particularly as we look forward, we have to keep in mind. Uh, going to slide uh, to, uh, 23, I, uh, I want to talk a little bit about the role of the G20. So the G20 has had a long engagement on the infrastructure agenda, really beginning around uh, beginning in 2012, when Korea was in the chair and with a lot of focus around investment pipelines. Since then, the agenda has grown. Uh, I won't go through all of these steps. I wanted them. I wanted to share this, uh, so it's available to you. But let me end with saying that the agenda has coalesced around something called quality infrastructure, particularly since Japan took the presidency. And the reason for this quality infrastructure is a recognition that sustainability, not only environment, but fiscal and debt sustainability was key, that quality of the assets that were built, being built was key. And that, you know, in some sense, this was a little bit of a dig at Chinese infrastructure. Uh, as opposed to kind of, uh, you know, Western infrastructure. Personally, you know, I think there are as many examples of good Chinese uh, infrastructure as there are examples of bad Western infrastructure, but the emphasis on quality is, I think, very welcome. Uh, I don't want to maybe take too much time on this section. Uh, let me skip, since I want to keep adequate time for discussion, let me skip to uh, slide 28 and talk a little bit about the future agenda. And let's go to slide uh, 29. Um, we did a paper together with Boston University uh, a year ago where we looked at the role of the G20 in the infrastructure space. Uh, and a lot of the findings are in the previous slides. Uh, I just wanted to say, that scale is extremely important and the G20 has shied away from that proposition. You know, essentially every time you talk about sustainable infrastructure in the G G20 or G7 space, they will always talk, oh, you need to get the policy frameworks right. You need to attract private finance and they stop at that. But the reality is that, you know, we are facing you know, this challenge of, as I said, transformation, which requires going to scale. If you look at the slide here 
we basically, you know, we did it in, because these are in, presented in averages, so we just showed it in two flat lines. But if you think about what's the infrastructure spend required to meet the SDGs, um, you know, uh, you see a very big jump that is needed roughly about a percent, uh, uh, you know, uh, of uh, uh, GDP. And if you look at what is needed to make that, uh, make uh, the capital stock sustainable with the planetary boundaries, especially climate, you need another percent or so. So the way we are arguing this is the world really needs a jump in infrastructure spending in the order of average of you know, roughly 2% to, to, to 3% over the next two decades. In advanced economies, it will be lower. In some emerging markets and developing countries, it will be a lot higher. And India is one of the countries where it needs to be higher. So there is this step jump that has to be taken. And the international community and the G20 can play an important role in making the case and setting uh, the policy actions and the financing frameworks that are needed in order to be able to finance a green recovery and to support long-term transformation. So the leadership element is extremely key. You know, the G7 has not really provided that leadership, uh, you know, in my view, over the next past two decades. It has been too much stuck in the status quo. The G20 tried to push it, but it keeps you know, also coming back very much to what we can't do rather than what we can do. Scaling up of investment will be very key. Yes, we need pipelines, but understanding the way in which we do this is going to be very important. Um, measurement and monitoring, I think, can be very powerful. We need to demonstrate the payoff from high quality infrastructure and the tremendous variation in the differences in the delivery of quality infrastructure. When you think about the power sector today, it is possible to deliver power at two and a half to four cents a kilowatt hour, yet in Africa, those costs are 25 to 30 cents a kilowatt hour. So I've been pushing very hard on the importance of benchmarks as a way to drive uh, quality infrastructure. You know, policy is extremely important, carbon pricing, elimination of fossil fuel subsidies, but also the phase out of coal. The phase out of coal will be a big challenge for India. And, you know, I think investing more in coal will be a big mistake, especially in a world where round the clock solar now is much cheaper than coal. Finally, on finance, I think it will be extremely important to mobilize the finance at the scale that is needed. And I want to come end with the you know, absolute importance of development finance institutions at the global level, at the regional level, and at the national level. And let me make two points here. First, is look at what Europe is doing. Europe has set out a very, very ambitious green deal, which is not, which has now been integrated into the green recovery. And it is truly ambitious. 
It is ambitious in scale of investment, and it is ambitious in terms of its transformative impact. How are they financing it? They are financing it on development finance and steroids. They have charged the European Investment Bank to scale up massively, providing a trillion dollars of funding, providing a lot of it in the form of actually concessional finance for innovative areas, but also teaming up with the private sector to provide a predictable space on the scale of finance. So the EIB is going to lend a trillion dollars over the next nine years in terms of meeting the aspirations of Europe and scaling up. And that is in combination with the national development banks, the KFWs, the Caisse de Depot, you know, the Italian uh, uh, development finance institutions. So Europe has put development finance on steroids right now. But the rest of the world is actually missing in action. In Canada, there is a big discussion going on on scaling up the development finance. In the United Kingdom, uh, Nick Stern and Tim Besley have put forward a proposal for a new national investment bank, which the chancellor has endorsed. So there is a lot of rethinking in the advanced economies about development finance institutions, but in emerging markets and developing countries, we are in a very bimodal world. There are a few countries, and actually only three, I would argue, China, uh, Brazil, and South Africa, which have development finance institutions at scale. But in others, including in India, we do not have the kind of development finance institutions at the scale that is needed. I know that Rakesh had emphasized this very much, but the reality is we are very, very far from in, in India especially in a world where the commercial banks simply will not be able to provide that level of finance that is needed. So there isn't time now to rethink development finance. But it is important for the G20 to also unleash the potential of the multilateral development banks. The multilateral development banks plan to uh, you know, support something like 250 billion over the next 18 months in support of the, uh, you know, the rescue and stabilization, but this is not for investment. This is for rescue and stabilization primarily, and there will be a need to support uh, the green recovery beyond that, and there will be a need to support the kind of transformation with this upfront spending, as I mentioned, over the next two decades. Uh, slide 31, um, shows a simple diagram that I use to think about the power of the multilateral development finance system. If you put 38 billion, one shot, into the um, multilateral development finance system, it is possible to double their capital from 680 billion to some, uh, you know, to 1.4 trillion. So 38 billion gives you a tremendous boost in the capital base of the development finance institutions. Second, if you adjust, as Larry Summers has been stressing, their super conservative financial parameters adjust their leverages in terms of gearing ratio 
and in terms of their willingness to take risk, you could treble the amount of lending that the MDBs are doing. And if you improve their private sector multipliers, you can produce something like a trillion dollars a year in terms of new infrastructure financing. And that's why you know, some of us have been insisting that this is the time to think about a new Marshall Plan and the G20 can play a very big role in a major rethink right now in the infrastructure space. This will be vitally important in my view to India and it will be a vital contribution that India could make to the world through the G20. So I'm totally biased on this, a complete partisan, but I really believe the sustainable infrastructure agenda therefore should figure at the very prominent you know, priority of the G20 agenda for India. Let me close with that. Uh, thank you, uh, uh, Rakesh. Thank you very much, Amar, for the really, um, am I heard because I'm getting a message saying my internet is unstable. We can hear you, Rakesh. Okay, good, excellent. Yes, once again, uh, Amar, thank you very much uh, for a really comprehensive and thoughtful presentation uh, with an incredible amount of work behind it. So what you might want to do is to send Rajat your bibliography of everything you've done in the last seven years on this issue, uh, which he can then in this uh, webinar. Um, we have, so this is uh, before I, provide any uh, comments. Um, Q&A, I already have uh, two questions. Um, so one first question is from Deepak Maheshwari. Um, and this basically asks for the impact of long litigation and moral hazard in public-private partnerships. And he has given the examples of the tax dispute with Vodafone, uh, franchising of the Delhi, Noida Delhi Flyway, uh, Delhi Gurugao Highway, and some other examples. Um, but as a general issue, um, is, is, it, uh, in, is, is it inherent in public-private partnerships to have a reasonably high probability of litigation and then uh, things getting into difficulty? Um, so, you know, roughly 60% of PPP contracts in the world are renegotiated, right? So that's inherent because you, you know, given the time horizon, given the uncertainties, and also given often over-optimism in the way the case is made about the PPPs, uh, because both the government as well as the private developers have an incentive to get the deal done because unfortunately a lot of the money is made in, is in the deal itself. Um, so, you know, there, there are, you know, in a, in a, in a litigation subsequent to the, I mean, there are a lot of difficulties we know in the, in the inception phase, but litigation uh, or recontracting is quite common. Obviously, the bigger the deal, the more, uh, you know, the more the, the interests uh, of kind of difficulties to, to resolve it. Um, but it is something where now there is tremendous amount of effort underway 
to use big data and information to try and improve predictability around contracts. There is an initiative, for example, underway by an entity called InfraClear that is collecting detailed information about contracts so that it can help improve the quality of contracts and the predictability of contracts and also the benchmarking of contracts. So one of the things that I didn't make, but the digital potential of improving infrastructure is tremendous. Digital con construction and in, in the physical side, you know, digital information in terms of the governance and decision-making, allowing governments to have much better there is a platform that has been that is being developed called Source, uh, you know, uh, which is a, a a platform developed by the MDBs, but for governments uh, and for the private sector, which is an infrastructure database. And the idea is that all governments can use this if they so choose to put their projects in, you know, initially and intrinsically for their own benefit, so that they have, in some sense, the access of the information and the details in a, com in a comparable way, but also to engage with the private sector. The third aspect of the digital, of course, is in the finance space. There is a lot of work right now to create infrastructure as an asset class, and the digital side can help a great deal. I do believe that you know, uh, you know, we are at a moment where there is tremendous possibilities of building a very, very different kind of infrastructure than we built in the past. And, you know, I, I look, I go so many times to seminars in, you know, that are very futuristic. You know, I've been, I mean, I've been working, as I said, to, to the, with the American Society of Civil Engineers, and they have been doing a lot of scenarios on what they call future cities. Uh, there's a lot of thinking about future connectivity. There's a lot of thinking about future resilience. So India today is at a unique moment because most of its infrastructure has not been built. So there's a tremendous opportunity right now to actually leapfrog, but the contracts and the, you know, the litigation part of it is also something that doesn't have to be the way it is if you, if you, you know, if you going case by case. So standardization, disclosure and transparency and improving the predictability of resolution can help a lot in re reducing the kind of post-contract uh, problems that we've been having in India. So just to uh, follow up to this question, uh, this from my side actually, but follow up to the question that was asked, um, is that most of the risk arises in the construction phase. Um, and then once the infrastructure project is finished, uh, the revenues, uh, assuming there are some kind of user charges, are then pretty stable. So, so uh, in the earlier phase and thinking on private participate infrastructure and PPP, we had the concept of BOT transfer, where the idea was the private sector builds, operates for some time, gets its money back, and then transfers the public sector. Now, isn't the solution the reversal of that? That is, the public sector builds, therefore goes through the full, uh, the, the major risky part of the, of the activity, and then sells it 
transfers it to the private sector once the um, revenues become stable and absolutely predictable? So uh, there's been a, you know, I mean, a lot of discussion exactly around this issue. Um, and, you know, in Mexico, for example, you know, they built the roads programs, they ran exactly into the kind of problem you mentioned, because in that initial phase, as you said, there are two kinds of risks. One is risks that are relating to costs, and the other is risk relating to revenues. So, you know, uh, if you uh, therefore wait until those risks are determined, then of course, you know, you can hand over Infrastructure, Australia, and many of the jurisdictions in Australia have taken that approach. So what they do is they look at each individual project. They look at the degree to which that riskiness is better able to be managed through a public sector uh, you know, involvement and then handing over to the private sector or whether it can be you know, uh, handed over to the private sector itself. The argument that is often made to hand over to the private sector right from the beginning is they, that they can integrate, in some sense, many of the operations and maintenance elements into the initial design. So there are pros and cons, but one conclusion from all of this is you need tremendous sophistication now in the public sector, actually in terms of this kind of infrastructure planning. And in India right now, we, well, you know, we still don't have that integrated capacity in my view. Uh, I look at New South Wales and Australia, I look at the UK with the Infrastructure Commission, et cetera. So I think the institutional strengthening of infrastructure decision-making and the difficulties that we have given the you know, center state uh, aspect of it is something worth spending time thinking about. The other thing, sorry, let me say one more thing. Here's a question. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, no, I'm just, I think that since time is short and the three other questions that have been submitted, um, let me just quickly go over one by one. So here's another question from another old Princetonian colleague, Suman Berry, who has happily escaped from Delhi and is currently cooling his heels in Boston. So here's a question. Uh, US economic history suggests that cheap, underdesigned infrastructure was central to its rise. Is there a risk that over-designed infrastructure, and he's, I suppose he's implying that a lot of the presentation implied over-design uh, in the climate change context, is there a risk that over-designed infrastructure will raise I-cores in poorer countries? Um, so, my answer actually is that you know you have to have adaptive infrastructure design, uh, and I think the power sector is a very good example of that. You know, it is possible now in the power sector to make tremendous leaps and bounds, as your colleague, uh, you know, at Brookings, Rahul Tonga has shown in terms of smart grids and you know uh, optimized power generation. Uh, and there is really no particular reason why, you know, not just, uh, you know, India, but, you know, in Africa, we can't do that. I mean, it's, it's now pretty much become uh, self-evident. 
At the same time, there is tremendous potential for distributed power, you know, especially in India. You know, we can have now distributed power systems that won't have to rely on a major grid. So uh, I don't think that over design is the is actually a is a big issue. I mean, I just I mean, I'm a I followed the Chinese build on infrastructure for you know a decade and a half, and you know I see that they are building better and better infrastructure and cheaper and cheaper infrastructure. There are tremendous economies of learning here. So I actually think that, you know, when I compare India to Turkey or China or Korea, the quality of infrastructure in India has not measured up to that of these countries. And I don't see why we should just accept low quality as though it is low cost. There is no evidence that low quality is low cost not just in terms of the long-term payoff, but even in terms of the upfront costs. So uh, I would just encourage very, very careful, you know, uh, uh, looking at the numbers and openness of mind. And I would come back to thinking of the power of the digital space as the Zoom is suggesting. So the third question uh, is from Dr. Bharti Chibber. Um, which is basically saying that um, on sustainable infrastructure, that after the 2009 North Atlantic financial crisis, country faster because they managed 70% of those green initiatives. So do you think that their opportunity for India today to further increase support renewable energy solar power through appropriate policies? Uh, and it will help spread essential services to the remote regions. Um, and again, th this area also where uh, it is certainly true, as you mentioned, that Raul Tongia and his group at the Center for Social and Economic Progress, CSEP, no longer Brookings India, are went away uh, from us. So it's now a Center for Social Economic Progress, and uh, we are doing a lot of work on this area. But please go ahead on this question. So I believe that India has a tremendous potential now to leapfrog, uh, to do accelerate the energy transition in a massive way. Um, India has a target of, as you know, of 175 gigawatts of renewables by 2022, and uh, you know, fi uh, 500 gigawatts. Uh, by 2030, which is larger than its existing capacity. And um, I've been looking into, you know, that uh, and, you know, had, you know, uh, quite a lot of discussions, including with Niti Aayog earlier this year. And my feeling is that, you know, it is important to understand the impediments holding it back uh, because a lot of this is disaggregated power which has to be put together. And the policy regime has a lot of, you know, I would say gaps in it right now. And the financing costs are very high. So addressing this for India is a big potential. And as uh, Ajay Mathur always reminds us, the ground the clock solar now in India is cheaper than most fossil fuel power gen energy generation. So the question we have to ask ourselves, you know, why 
isn't India accelerating that? Uh, and I would say that that should be a central part, both looking at the policy, but also at the finance piece of this. The second part on India is how rapidly should in, can India phase out its coal? My personal view is if you could instantaneously replace a coal-fired power plant with the best of what is possible today, it will pay for itself. It's not something, you know, and, and if you add into that the saved kind of carbon emissions, you know, you know, there's a tremendous save, global saving that maybe we can tap through carbon offset markets, for example. So these two dimensions, I do think India could do tremendously better on. I think India has a tremendous potential, again, to really accelerate on two other dimensions, uh, mass transit, or many other dimensions, but mass transit in the, in, the, uh, in the transport side, mass transit and EVs. Uh, it has tremendous potential to shift to rail transport, as your uh, report pointed out, uh, uh, Rakesh. I think the potential for India to shift massively to a renewed investment in rail and moving a lot more goods through rail is, great, is, is tremendous, again, requiring large upfront, including for passenger trains. You know, when you wrote your report, you know, uh, I would say high-speed rail was prohibitively expensive, and hence you were not recommending it. Looking at the parameters from China, I know there are difficulties of collaborating with China, but even the costs from Japan have come down tremendously, and India does have tremendous potential of moving a lot more people and goods via the rail network. And the last area where India has tremendous potential is really around redesign of cities and buildings. So there's much, much, much potential in India right now. And I think taking a systems view to it and taking a, you know, uh, you know what could India do by 2020, what could India do by 2030, et cetera, I think it would help a great deal in re rethinking the infrastructure space in India. But that's really a challenge, not just for India, but for the G20 at large. So I think India's needs and the G20 needs really coincide in my view. So I have three more questions. And so what I'm going to do is to just give you all of them in together. And then if you can give a brief response as best as you can. Uh, one, um, I think this is sort of the, the origin is really what's happening today in terms of Zoom, et cetera, on the issue of uh, efforts to limit carbon emissions, et cetera that uh, can transport be substituted in the future with communication which is non-polluting? That's one. Two, a very different question. Uh, is there enough building material for all the infrastructure that has to be built in the next so many years? Um, how will bi biodiversity be balanced if there isn't enough uh, building material? And finally, uh, there's a question on uh, what you'd mentioned about Japan as in this presidency emphasized quality infrastructure. Um, was it, is there anything special that Japan put on the table within the discussion infrastructure in terms of quality infrastructure or just a change in nomenclature? This is from Pratik Kukreja. Thank you. First Let me question take them. was from Augustine Peter. Yeah. Name the first question on the uh, non-polluting communication 
was on Augustine Peter, and the second on building materials on P.K. Gautam. Okay, so these are excellent questions. So, yeah, I think, um, you know, again, I think the digital space uh, and the changes in practice that we are seeing in the aftermath of COVID will be a game changer for the future, affecting, you know, transport across and within countries. So I do, and also the way in which cities will develop. You know, there's tremendous potential now for changing in some sense, uh, you know, the need for everybody to come to the city center, for example. So I absolutely, my, the answer is yes. If you look at what's happening in Milan, as an example, you know, that's exactly what they are doing. So it's a, it is indeed something that, you know, I think really needs to be aggressively pursued. Mm -hmm. Building materials, yes. Um, one of the things that is really become scarce in the world is sand. And, you know, we would think that there is tremendous amount of sand in the world, but the sand that is used for building material is coarser, comes from riverbeds, and there is now a lot of scavenging of riverbeds to get the sand that we need. And so, in some sense, we have to be very, very mindful, therefore, about sustainability of infrastructure in the build space. Uh, and this is, again, some things that engineers around the world are thinking in terms of materials and sustainability. But unfortunately, in developing countries, you know, again, given the, you know, that the discount rates that we all have uh, in our mind, we don't tend to be that conservationist. But yes, it's absolutely clear. And the last question on bio, I mean, not last, but the question on biodiversity is absolutely important because linear infrastructure is the biggest threat to biodiversity. And within the next 20 years, we will at least double linear infrastructure, which really is ecologically tremendously damaging. So there's a lot of rethinking going on um, in you know WWF and others are coming out in you know, Nature Conservancy. The French government's been doing a lot of rethinking around linear infrastructure. So the relationship between between uh, infrastructure and nature, biodiversity, absolutely central. The last question: What did Japan bring to it? So Japan. So quality infrastructure, and if I have a slide. Uh, in the slide pack that you know lays out the principles of quality infrastructure was really motivated in a sense by japan's concern that a lot of the infrastructure that was being built in a rapid way especially you know by china in many continents was not as high quality as it as it needed to be particularly as i mentioned with respect to the uh, environmental side, but also with respect to debt and fiscal sustainability and concerns about transparency. So they pursued that agenda very strongly, but I found a very important mm -hmm. value in the G20 discussion that year is countries like China and India said, wait a minute, you know, we can't build your infrastructure very much in line with what had been said, we have a development imperative and the quality princi principles of quality infrastructure really did bring together the demand and the supply side considerations. And, you know, uh, actually is embedded in the sustainable infrastructure principles and agenda that I mentioned. 
So I think that's it, Rakesh, for my side. Thank you. Thank you very much, Amar. Uh, and thank you to all the questioners. Uh, very, very good questions. Um, there's one final request, Rajat, that whether you can share Amar's presentation with all the participants. Um, that would be very nice. It is an excellent presentation. Um, so I'll just conclude with a two, three minutes of, 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 of final comments. And I'll just pick up a few points that struck me from this very wide-ranging presentation. Uh, one thing that uh, Amar uh, mentioned, which then was not emphasized enough, I believe, is really investing in natural resources or natural infrastructure, which includes water, soil, oceans, land restoration, forests, etc. cetera. Uh, to my mind, uh, this is extremely important. And investment in each the restoration of many of these natural resources will actually save a lot of money in the future. And these are typical, absolutely typical um, public goods in the sense that you can't get private returns out of them, but huge returns to society. And so I think that that is one thing that Amar mentioned, which I think is extremely important. And Many of us, if I may say so, infrastructure have not paid enough attention. Second, um, uh, one issue particularly important for us in India, I think, he mentioned, he talked about uh, institutional capacity and governance in terms of planning for infrastructure. And if I may say so, uh, with the abolition of uh, we've actually gone back to infrastructure where there are lots of externalities, lots of interconnections with, between power investment, between transportation investment, also ocean, etc. That you really do need a somewhat centralized programming planning capacity. And this is not planning in the sort of tradition, traditional sense of central planning. Um, it really is planning for the future in terms of giving information to all market participants, the public at large, the government itself, in terms of what kind of coordination is needed between different aspects of infrastructure, timing, phasing, etc. And even the, whereas, whereas it may be the case that the planning commission itself had not been very good doing some of these things, uh, nonetheless, now there's really there's, there's actually no organized institutional capacity for coordination across ministries, sectors at the central level, and even more so coordination between the central and and uh, state. Uh, in terms of just transport, in the India Transport Report, uh, we had uh, suggested setting up an office for transport strategy at the central level, and along with that, similar offices for transport strategy the state level. There may be many different ways of doing things. I wouldn't, in some sense, advocate one, one, just one idea. But I think this is a very important point, Amar, that you made. Uh, third, um, this issue of limits to financing, private finance, etc., where you brought to bear a lot of the information, a lot, lot of new activity in Europe in terms of emphasis on, uh, on development finance institutions the European Investment Bank, the KFW, uh, and others in Europe for uh, really programming and finding investment, uh, investment funds for infrastructure, both public and private. 
So I think that that's an issue that is very live in India. Um, I was somewhat associated uh, with the founding of IDFC back in the late 1990s. I have to say that my friends who were successors running IDFC went astray and turned IDFC into a commercial bank, which is really not the intention of founding that is still called infrastructure. I mean, it's now called IDFC Bank. It doesn't make any sense. Infrastructure Development Finance Company Bank, but it's just a commercial bank now. I'm making no comment on the quality of that bank. Uh, nonetheless, the whole idea was to set up a development finance institution, which was then subverted, if I can use some strong language. Similarly, another infrastructure finance institution was founded as something to do with that this is a live issue today. And it is very important that if that does come up, we have to think of the right model to, to, to set it up. Um, and finally, I would just say that uh, this issue, both of the development finance institutions, plus maybe um, more public finance of infrastructure, but along with private finance, I think there's still a lot of work to be done to really go forward in the, to, to, to have the adequate both financing as well as capacity to implement the kind of infrastructure that Amar has talked about in terms of magnitudes uh, that, that are required. Uh, I was little. I was very happy to see that the the, the trade that Amar gave uh, for about eight percent of GDP for infrastructure. Uh, coincidentally, that exactly the target that we had provided back. Thank you, uh, Rajat. Over back to you. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Rakesh. We missed uh, what you said towards the end. You were saying 8% of uh, GDP spend on infrastructure. Uh, we, we missed uh, a little yes. bit of combined. Yeah. Oh, I see. Yeah. It, that uh, I was saying that Amar's, uh, Amar's uh, estimate of what is required uh -huh. is 8%, of, so between 75 and 8 actually, eight. In, in his presentation. His estimate is currently going at 55 um, and I was just commenting that maybe it's a coincidence that the uh, what we had worked out as requirement for achieving eight nine percent growth on a sustained basis for the following twenty years 1996-97 was indeed eight percent of GDP for infrastructure investment all combined. Oh. <laughs> thank you, thank you, I, Amar. I, I, Rakesh, I was I was absolutely aware of that number. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Amar. Uh, and thank you, Rakesh, for, for this wonderful session. And this is precisely the reason that uh, we at ECREAR are holding these G20 sessions is not only to inform and discuss what potentially India's agenda is likely to be or could be in 2022, but also inform live issues and what could be of relevance to policy in India. And clearly, what both of you have said, clearly some of the issues come starkly out. What one, of course, is whether, you know, in what form we could have development finance institutions in India, whether we need to rethink that model and whether private finance of infrastructure has really served the needs and whether they will serve the needs of the magnitude uh, at which we do need them. And the other thing Rakesh and, and, and Amar, both of you have mentioned, uh, is the need for having an integrated 
intersectoral, interministerial planning for transport, which clearly has so many spillovers. And precisely, I mean, these are issues that we will continue to discuss. Thank you, uh, Amar, for making the time. Thank you, Rakesh, and welcome back once again. And thank you to all the attendees. And thank you for the team at ICRIER for supporting this. We will be back again uh, in a month's time with our third seminar in the G20 and 22 series. Until then, bye-bye.